All right, good morning, Tri-Village Church. It is great to be with you all this morning. As uh, Chad said, my name's Kyle, and um, I just love coming to be with you guys and studying the Bible together and, and, and sharing with you. Before I get going today, I know I'm a week late, but I celebrated with you from afar. You had a third birthday uh, last week. So happy, happy third birthday to Tri-Village Church. Um, I'm just so excited for what God has done here over three years, and there's a lot of amazing years ahead. So um, great to be with you all. Around the world today, um, I'm seeing something pretty remarkable happening. This is remarkable because it is against all expectations. I'm seeing transformed lives, families, communities just growing like crazy. And let me tell you where this transformation is growing. It's growing in places where it is illegal to be a Christian. It's growing in places where the gathering that we get to enjoy here today and be together and worship and study the Word of God is illegal. It's happening where it's dangerous to proclaim that you are a follower of Christ. So you're hearing that right. There's a connection here. You would think that where it is illegal, where it's dangerous, if you're looking from the outside and going, these would be the places where faith in Jesus would just be squashed or would be stamped out. But instead, this is where God's church is actually growing the fastest anywhere in our world and all these regions of the world where a love for God's word is growing in places where you can't even go purchase a Bible or have access to one unless it's secretly and illegally brought to you. This is amazing and is so pertinent for us today because there's a couple of keys here. First, God's going to move where he moves and there's no boundary, there's no legality, there's nothing that's going to stop it. But second, it's because in these countries, every follower of Jesus sees that they are the ones God has to share about his love and about his grace. Instead of saying, hey, come to this gathering where you will hear about the Lord, these followers of Jesus see their neighborhoods, their workplaces, any friend, any contact as a holy opportunity to share about the, the transformation and the hope that they have found. All of these followers of Jesus see that it is not the job of someone who would be labeled as a professional in ministry or a certain level of education or a certain level of wealth, whatever it may be, that allows someone to share about the love of Christ. All are sharing. They're seeking transformation. All, and here's our theme today, see themselves as called. And not just called to ministry in church on Sunday mornings and Bible study on Wednesday nights, and that's all good, but they are called to all the time ministry. That is one of our core values of this church. So this series, Nehemiah, that we're in today, uh, we're in the third week, we call this series Restored because our prayer for our church, for all of you, is for personal restoration, is for restoration that can only happen in Christ, would fill our lives, but we're also praying for restoration of the world around us, 
We're praying that that restoration would overflow into every opportunity God places before us. So today we're in Nehemiah chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm going to be honest with you this week, started, and I say started, started out as a really tough study. You'll see why in just a minute, because um, the first two weeks of this series in Nehemiah chapter 1, there's this, there's this beautiful prayer, Nehemiah's prayer for, for the brokenness, for the opportunity. Chapter 2, I listened to Will's sermon from last week um, on, on faithfulness and incredible leadership and the principles that come. And I sat down to start reading chapter 3. And what I found on first and even second glance is chapter 3 is a list. It's a list of people and the segments of the gates of Jerusalem that they constructed. And that was it. So my first thought, selfishly, um, passively, aggressively to Will, was thanks, man, for this topic and this passage this week. But here's what happens that I love, because we, we get to dive into the Word together, we get to study more. I, Chad and I sat down together, and, and Will and I sat down together, and as we studied this together, what God really opened up to us, it, it, it just blew my mind this week, um, what he has to say, not just as a historical note from 2,500 years ago. This is a story. This is an actual account of workers who were building the wall. But this passage marks a key turning point in the history of God working in his people and among his people. So if you'd stand with me this morning, we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 together. We do this here at Tri-Village Church. We stand when we read together um, out of reverence for God's word. So here we go. I'm going to go verses 1 through 12. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, now we've already done it a couple times, file this away. How many times are you going to hear this next to, next to? So next to him, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joyeda, son of Paseah, and Meshalem, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of um, Hereia, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabneah, made repairs next to him. 
Melchijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of um, Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. You can all be seated. While I take a breath after those names. Good practice in uh, 2,500-year-old year uh, year names. And that chapter continues. That's verse 1 through 12. There's 32 verses in Nehemiah chapter 3. And the list continues on for all 32. Next to them and beyond them and after them. This is who was doing the work. This is who was making the repairs. So what I want to do today, I want to point out uh, directly in this passage, just as I soaked in this this week, three beauties that I see here. Three beauties that are signs that are certainly this beautiful record that we can learn from. But then I want to move from there and I'm going to walk us through a bunch of scripture and some history of God's people because this isn't just one historical fact that is isolated. What we're reading about here is something that you can look back, you can see how God is working, but it also points to something much greater. So that's what we're going to do today. You with me? All right. So the three beauties that I see here, the first, and this is great and I think so needed, not only in our church but in our world, the beauty of unity. What we actually encountered, not just in those 12 verses, but in the whole chapter, is that there are a lot of things 2,500 years ago in this culture and in this context among the site that would divide people. I mean, you name it and people could be divided by it. Sound familiar? It could be socioeconomic class. It could be profession. It was separation between clergy and laity, the priests and the workers. There could be uh, men and women, families, fathers uh, and, and kids. These would be uh, not places you would find unity. When so much can serve to divide, we actually find that here in the work of restoration, somehow there is unity found. Here we read about people who are together and who are about God's work, putting aside everything that could divide them that they could come up with and finding unity in it. This is for clergy and laity. They're working together, the high priests and the workers. Different economic status of people, men and women, whole families together, different professions. Something about what is going on here about this restoration is unifying. This is pointing to something that's coming that's really awesome. Second, I want to point out the beauty of humility. That in the work of God, the work that, that Nehemiah sees, the restoration that is needed, we have the beauty of unity, now we have the beauty of humility. Everyone has a part. Now, I could list any of the number that we have here, but one really struck, stuck out to me this week. Nehemiah 3.14, we're going to read of one in particular. The dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerim. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Why does that stick out to me? The dung gate. Anybody? So what I searched, I said, is that really? 
Is there a, like, what, what was the translation? What's the word here? No, it's exactly as you read it. This is the gate of the city that opens up out into the valley, out into the area where all of the waste is placed. Who is working here, who usually in this culture would definitely not be working on the dung gate? It's a ruler. This is a noble of the city working on the dung gate. It's part of this restoration, the unity, the beauty of humility. And this is a whole sermon in itself, but I love the the thing here. Humility starts with elevating the right things. Humility doesn't start with elevating ourselves. Humility here, we have a ruler who has a vision of the work of God that is doing. And we read that ruler probably, could they have chosen uh, the fountain by the king's garden? The fountain gate, the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, absolutely. Here he is, work of restoration. This gate needs just as much repair and restoration as any of the others in this holy city. And from here, this work of restoration, this struck me so hard this week. You guys are going to see. I I loved study for this sermon this week. This work of restoration, this is God's people. They're working on Jerusalem. You've heard this in the last couple of weeks. This is the holy city of their people. So you go, yeah, okay, we get it. They've been in exile. They've been in slavery. They've been a conquered people. Now they finally get a chance to move here and they get a chance to restore everybody now. Sure, they're up for this work of restoration. Not at all what God had for them. Because if you look back into the history of God's people, What you find is that whether they were in captivity, in slavery, God's command of restoration didn't change. He didn't tell them, hey, look forward and someday when you get back to Jerusalem, you're going to restore it. When they were enslaved, when they were in captivity, God actually looked down on his people and said, I know you're not in the place that you want to be. Here is my command for you among the people who are oppressing you. It is not to hate them. It is not to be subversive. He said, settle down, start families, build your homes, build good businesses, live your life with excellence. You in the middle of this city that I know you say is sinful and pagan and falling apart, God says, I have you here for a purpose because my desire is not just for Jerusalem to flourish. My desire is for the city to flourish. Wherever city you find yourself, you are to work for its flourishing. This is a command from God all the way throughout, so dear to his heart. And the third, I love this this week. This is just such a prayer for, our, for the church around the world. I saw the beauty of life and work side by side. Now I pointed it out as I read, but I went through this passage and I I counted a similar phrase. Either next to him or next to him or after them or beyond them, some version of this in the 32 verses of Nehemiah chapter three is mentioned, get this, 24 times. There's something really important here about next to, next to, next to. That this work is not done when people are operating alone. This work is not done if we view ourselves not as part of this greater, more beautiful whole. So now we got to zoom out for a second. 
Because if we just say here, it's totally possible, we could encounter this passage, the whole book of Nehemiah, and say, great. Thanks, Kyle. 2,500 years ago, we got this historical count. We got some leadership lessons. We got some, some nice thoughts about unity. Great history to read. But we need to see and actually hear in this passage, not just in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 3, where all this was in the story of God, what it reminds us of and what it points us towards. So in the time of Nehemiah, Jerusalem, what they're working on to the people of God. Why is this so important? Why do we hear when it's crumbling that people weep? Jerusalem to the people of God is the place where they worship. It's the place where the temple was. And so worship wasn't just all these other scattered out uh, uh, worship gatherings. Worship for them happened in one place. It was the temple in Jerusalem. This temple is holy because uh, this is where God's presence was found in the midst of his people. His presence was there. It wasn't out in, in their account and in their belief that was the veil between the temple that where, uh, where holiness resided. And there was a separateness there, but it was in the midst of the people. This is the holy city because this is where God's people trace the line from King David. But what they trace is that from King David, generations later, there is prophecy. It's who they're waiting for is their savior, their Messiah, their king. This city is holy because it holds so much significance in the history of the Jewish people. So at the time of Nehemiah, this blew my mind this week again, most scholars believe that this marks a movement or a progression in the Bible. Follow me here. Don't miss this point. This marks a movement or progression in the Bible. So up until this point, what we find through a lot of the Old Testament, up until this point, is that the weight or the sin of Israel, the weight of leadership and, and work often falls on a singular individual. Moses is one example of this. If you read through the Old Testament, you find time after time after time, God's people are going astray. They're falling into other idols. Um, they're, they're, they're not listening and following the law that the Lord has given them. And God speaks directly to Moses over and over and says, get out of the way while I take them out. They're not living as the holy people that I set them apart to be. And it is a singular individual who steps in and convinces God or, or intervenes for his people and says no. But here in Nehemiah 3, we find not a singular individual, we find a group of people. So to quote one of the authors I read this week, and I know Chad and Will read this guy a lot too, um, quote from Tim Keller this week. There has been a movement Movement here, away from the ministry being done by just one or two leaders to it being done by the whole people of God. Rebuilding the people of God is the work of the whole people of God. Everybody has to do it. Key, key point. This is so much more than a list of people. We find it even in the first verse of chapter 3, which says again, we got it up there, good. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. I highlighted a couple key words for us here. 
They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. So dedicated. There's a Hebrew word here. It's translated to dedicated. What it means more holistically, what the priest is declaring here is that this is not just, oh, this is nice. They are declaring this is holy. They are declaring not some singular place at some singular time. They are declaring the work of God's, of a group of people together, dedicated, declaring it holy. What the whole people built, don't miss this, what they built was pronounced holy. So there's a progression, a movement here that's part of the much larger story. As we trace God's story through, is it this one place in time that's holy? The work of God's hands, the people in unity working together that is holy, it points to something really important about holiness. And you can turn to many of the prophets in the Old Testament and find uh, a lot, a lot of verses. This one, what I chose this week is from the prophet Zechariah, what this is pointing to. So turn with me, it'll be up on the screens too, Zechariah 14, verses 20 and 21. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now you may say, what's the connection here? We're moving away. We're about something being declared holy. There's a movement. There's a progression about holiness, about what is declared holy. And here we find in the prophet, it's pointing to something else. What the prophet is saying, there is a day that holiness will break out. There is a day right now, the pots that are used in the temple of the Lord and are used for the sacrifices, they would have inscribed holy to the Lord and they were only allowed in this one place. These were the ones not to be used for anything else. They were entirely set aside. They were separate. And what the prophet here is saying, there will be a day that in this city, even the adornments on the horses Everything outside of that holy of holy place, the city will be declared holy and everything in it. There will be a day when holiness breaks out. And there won't be a Canaanite anymore because it is the nations who will be declared holy in the house of the Lord. So this is pointing. You've heard it the last couple of weeks. It is all through Nehemiah. Nehemiah here, but Nehemiah and what we read points to a greater Nehemiah, a perfect Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, who was at the right hand of the king, the cupbearer, sees brokenness and restoration and begs the king to come and be his agent to restore it. The greater Nehemiah leaves the throne of God because there is brokenness and restoration needed in the world and comes to offer it to the world. We have Nehemiah and the priests who declare the wall holy. But there is one coming who declares the entire city holy. 
There is one now who doesn't only reside in a temple in the midst of his people, but will indwell his people into a living temple. What that means in redemptive history, what that means in the history of God with his people is him sending his son, Jesus Christ. The one who, seeing brokenness and the need of restoration, came to restore, offers the invitation for restoration to anybody who asks for it. But there's another invitation. It's an invitation to a life that lets that restoration, and it's not just a personal one, it lets that restoration spill over into the world. If you don't believe me yet, we're going to keep going. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It's going to be up on the screen too. The invitation to a life that seeks restoration in the world. Same language we're looking at here. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. What we're finding here is the shift that because of Jesus, because of Jesus seeing the need for restoration, coming to seek restoration and bring it to the world. It's not just a place. It's not just a wall. It's not just a work anymore that is declared holy. Holy is not just a place. It's a people. It's a people. 1 Peter 2.5 puts a great... Uh, 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 Term to this. I'm going to read four and five. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Catch this, I'm going to refer to it later. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is so important, so important today because the restoration of the world, the places where brokenness exists, the places where people are struggling when life is defined by war, by famine, by difficulty, by challenge, this is the place where God desires his grace, his love to overflow into the world. Those are the places. It's the place where his holiness resides. Where does it reside? So clearly we find here it resides in his priesthood. Who is the priesthood? His people. Here's why it's so important. We don't often live life in this way. I'm going to give you some examples. For centuries and centuries, uh, the church hasn't lived uh, life in this way. And this has been wrestled with. This is one of the darkest lies because I think it is, it is one of the biggest boundaries that causes us to miss so much of what God has for us. 
The term to describe this is called dualism. Dualism is something that is divided. Things that are made separate into two aspects. So what we've often divided in our lives, we've divided something we would call the sacred. This pertains to our view of what is holy, what is godly, what is the spiritual, and we've divided from it the secular. Basically, what is everything else? The sacred and the secular. So an example, think about this now. I want to challenge you. What do we call the holy moments of our week or the holy moments of our lives? My holy time. Church on Sundays, with my life group on Wednesdays, morning devotion and the Bible, certainly those are all holy time, but then we seem to separate a lot of the rest of life. Because in the rest of the week, we act, we live, we see it as if everything else is just a grind. And I can't wait to get to the holy moment. As if the places God has us aren't meant to be holy. Think about it. Our homes, workplaces, where we live, in the midst of our neighborhoods, the places we frequent, the grocery stores, hair salons, coffee shops, those who are out walking in the same places. Think about it this way. From the ages of 25 to 65, generally, I know some people work longer, shorter, whatever. Usual working life. From ages 25 to 65, if you come to church every week, you're worshiping here, this is a holy space. It definitely is. I'm not denying that. You are going to spend somewhere between 2,000 to 3,000 hours in this place during those 40 years. Let's look at it another way. The places you work, the neighborhood you inhabit, the places you frequent, the rest of life, for those same ages, if it's just general working hours, it's not two to 3,000 hours in those 40 years. Probably somewhere in the vicinity of 96,000 hours. If there's a sigh there going, oh, that's how much I'm working. That's... Okay. Could that huge difference be for a reason? If we buy into that dualism that here's the sacred, here's the secular, this is bad because we are looking at most of our lives being non-holy stuff. We are looking at the bulk of our lives not, and saying only this piece is dedicated to God's kingdom. Only this piece is what is called holy. But as we just clearly walk through scripture, it's not just work that broke out. It's not just like a job, a nine to five that was declared holy. We just read holiness broke all the boundaries. God has a living temple that he sends to the world. Holy is not a place. Holy is a people. So for healing, for repairing the brokenness that is seen in our workplaces, our homes, neighborhoods, nations, and the whole world. God says, I see that brokenness and I have a people for that. I have a people that I desire that holiness to overflow from. And if you're not following me yet, it's okay. I have some thoughts, some examples for you and two invitations. 
First, what this means is there is a, a, the most important invitation for all of you here. If Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life, if you have not asked him for restoration, for his holiness, please, please do that today. Because any of the next steps don't work without that. Start there. But if you are part of what we just read, that priesthood, that place, that living temple where holiness resides, I have some suggestions for you. Because you say, great, Kyle, I, I, want to, I want this to overflow. I want this to play out in my life. My suggestions for you are simple. First, pray. Pray for your calling. Pray to give thanks for where God has placed you, wherever that may be. And pray for a heart that looks at those around you and sees an opportunity to share part of this holiness that we're talking about. Second, please start viewing the whole week, not just church, not the other Bible studies, as your mission. Start to see the whole week as your mission field. Now this week, there's a reframe that happens. We can look at work. We can look at life. I am a guy who does long to-do lists. Some of that can feel like it is totally a grind. The challenge to you, if you really are that royal priesthood, that place where holiness resides, view the week in that way. There's a reframe that we can see happening. And instead of finding this in a book or a commentary or making it up this week, uh, I talked to some people related to Tri-Village here. My examples are directly from Tri-Village, which I exactly love. So I have a quote I want to share with you from uh, one of your leaders here at Tri-Village Church who works in real estate. And she says, I originally felt like my career in real estate was just for a paycheck. I didn't see how I could live out my faith or my passions through my work. However, in the last year, my perspective on this has been challenged and changing. Instead of each client being a means to an end, I see each of my clients as image bearers. Each client has a story, dreams, and hopes for their future and through establishing roots in their community by purchasing a home. I get to be an integral piece of that story. Not only is my job to help clients find a home, but it is to be their advisor, counselor, and confidant. My relationship with clients now extends far past the closing table, and I have been able to build some great friendships. Living out my faith in my work has brought community and trust-based connection to every transaction, making each day a new day in the mission field, not just another day on the grind. How about an amen for that thought, huh? I love that. That is reframing exactly where God has you. Please don't live, leave here saying, well, pastor told me to become a real estate agent um, because that was going to be holy. See the reframe that there is every opportunity in everyone encountered is an image bearer, is someone God desires to see transformation in and desires then to send out into the world to transform. What a beautiful reframe. Third, grow radically. What I mean by this is do this together. Another story from Tri-Village Church. Again, didn't need to go any farther than this place. 
but that I love this week is a life group who were challenged to start serving together. They studied together. Uh, we're in the Word. We're talking about the sermons and we're meeting weekly. And, and there was a family who felt that call to say our home can be open. How can our home be more open? They ended up signing up with a group called Safe Families. This helps families who are in crisis and is, is like a temporary care uh, for the children um, of these families who may be in a really tough spot. But as they looked on it together, it was far beyond themselves because they looked at this and they said, this is a lot. Without a doubt, life gets turned just absolutely upside down when one or multiple kids arrive in your home coming from families who are going through a really tough time. And the life group, as I've heard the story, kind of looked on and goes, we're with you in this. Another couple in the group actually said, actually, we're gonna, we, want, we feel the call to do this too. And so these households together saw something that was overwhelming alone in a place they felt called to extend that holiness to the world. And they together found the community that said, yep, we got this, whatever comes our way, because we're definitely not in this alone. We have the support around us. So grow radically and do this together. Now this morning... This call to us, the priesthood of believers, the call to all the time ministry to extend, to live life as one who has been transformed, as one who has been restored and offering that to the world. I did a, a thought experiment this week because what we find in Nehemiah is a list, next to, next to, next to, but it's far more than a list. I think it's what God sees as his people engage in the work of restoration. I think it is something that brings glory to him and glory to his name. So what I did in this thought experiment this week, I took a look at this church, at our church. When we can leave our church services sometimes and say, you know, I give the pastor or preacher uh, this score on a one to 10. Don't ever tell me what you gave me, please or the worship band, or this, or these things that we saw. What I actually think is so much more true is an account much like we read in Nehemiah chapter 3 of the people. So here's my look at our version of this today. At Tri-Village Church this morning, there were people up early to make sure that the chairs were set up. There was a tech and production team who came to make sure that everything was going to work well and who work every week behind the scenes to make sure that nothing is distracting. Lights, sound, music, everything. There's someone who showed up to make sure that the doors were open and that people were greeted with a smile. There's children's ministry volunteers who make sure that children come here and don't just get a time to play, but actually come to hear about Jesus. Next to them in worship at Tri-Village Church today is someone who leaves this building and sees themselves in a new way as someone called to all the time ministry and therefore starts to pray for her co-workers every day. Next to her is a co-worker who has been struggling in life and absolutely needed that prayer. Next to them is the stay-at-home parent who went to their neighborhood to someone who gathers neighbors together 
leads at a local school is a source of restoration, is a safe place to come for anyone in their neighborhood. Next to them was a neighbor who was waiting for an invitation to new life in Jesus Christ and had that invitation shared with them and received it. Next to them is the family who sees their home as a place where people can find healing and can find restoration, so it is always open. Next to them is someone who has experienced some success in their work and in their business who sees the opportunity to use financial resources and other resources to influence and to build the global kingdom of God. Next to them is a community in a far corner of the world far away from us, but who then has a Bible in their own language for the first time, and I've seen this happen, and they hear it or read it for the first time and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus comes into their life and saves them. Next to them are their neighbors and the villages next door. Next to them, next to them, next to them. And in all of them, that living temple, that Holy Spirit, the restoration and love that only Jesus Christ can offer. Next to them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. I'm so thankful for your word and... um, Lord, your word is certainly historical fact and history and and, and an account of who you are, who you have been, Father, but it is so much more than that. It is living and active, Father. It's something we hear from, learn from, you speak from today. So Lord, when we look at the list of faithful people building the walls in the time of Nehemiah, Father, I pray for Tri-Village Church, I pray for the church of our nation, and I pray for your global church Father, for the continued growth of identity that you offer, that holiness is not a place, it's a people. You are the one who makes that possible. You are the source of all of it. So, Father, would you send us out as restored people or people who are being restored, seeking restoration in our communities and our loved ones. That's our prayer today. Amen.